Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Okay, sorry for the, for the complications. We're getting ready now. I'd like to thank, first of all, our advertising sponsors this week. This week, uh, the Liquid Scoop advertised us. I'd like to give them a big thank you. I'd like to thank Chazak. Um, they offer programs from children to teens, singles, couples, millennials, baby boomers, to all our cherished seniors. Chazak offers programming for all. And to be part of it, join Chazak.com. Um, I'd like to also thank you, COL Live, Mika Sofa, for sponsoring. Am I unmuted? Menachem. You're, 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 you're good. Thank you. Okay. And uh, I also would like to give a special thank you to Dr. Shmuley Mandelman for coming on this week and to share his time. And it's funny again that I'm in Milwaukee this week and uh, this whole weekend everybody's saying Shmuley Mandelman's coming, Dr. Mandelman, who's we're up here, and I happen to be here, so it's going to be an interesting program. So let's get started first with Coach Menachem with opening words, and then Menachem, when you're done, please shoot it back to me, okay? Beautiful. Sorry for the technicals. Welcome everyone to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem. I'm very excited and I want to welcome Ushi this week also for being with us tonight from Milwaukee. And tonight's, tonight's topic, I believe we got the most questions from all the weeks and I, Baruch Hashem, we're able to have this platform where people can feel comfortable to send in their questions so we can have a discuss tonight in Mitz Hashem. And I want to thank everyone again for the, for the feedback and the questions that you're sending in, and especially for the Let's Get Real team for putting this together, again, doing such a great job. So before we start tonight's program, I feel it's very important to put into perspective a little bit um, to understand that we're going to have all of these questions thrown on the doctor tonight. And uh, with his experience, he'll probably have no problem. He'll go straight from one to the next. He'll say, this is this, this is that. And people out there, again, have a hard time, first of all, to hear and to accept. And this is, this is a real um, uh, heavy topic. And it's just, if you can just hear the ideas and understand that there are solutions, again, not for everything maybe, but to make things a little bit easier. And not that it's going to be easy. It is tough, but it's going to make the journey a little bit easier. There are those who are suffering in silence, not able to make sense of their own suffering. And those who have close ones that are suffering and they really can turn their world into a black world, really, really deep and black. And it's not something that can be explained for those who feel it and have, have gone through, they understand. But it's, it's, again, it's a feeling and a feeling is not something you can explain. But we need to give them the validation that we have to understand we don't get what they're going through. We can't pretend that when they do start talking, we understand. Because it's a, it's a different type of world which somebody doesn't go through. We can't be, we can't be done, we can't understand them. And especially kids with parents, 
again, parents, they don't mean anything bad. They're trying to help the child and to tell the kid it's okay. But if the child comes and it tries to express, usually they have a hard time expressing those feelings. They have a hard time themselves understanding what's going on. And they come to the parent to complain sometimes. And we're not always in the mood. And we tell them just to let go. It could be kids went through some trauma that wasn't processed and just by telling them let go, it makes it worse. So all we have to do is listen. The truth is when a child does come to you and bring something up, we're, we're lucky because many kids, they don't even know, they can't process it themselves, they can't verbalize it and they can either misbehave or it comes out different ways. But if the child comes to you and does mention something, grab it. Just sit there and listen. Don't shut them up by saying, don't worry, it's fine. You know, it's nothing. Let them talk. And hopefully you can get some more information out and then you'll see if you actually need to look for a professional if it's something that you can't do by yourself. But these topics tonight are real. And the truth is in the past years, the awareness and the information of mental health has gotten much better. The awareness has gotten, gotten out. And there are people even asking why and what has happened in today's days that there's so many uh, challenges, mental health, and we're wondering what's today different than it used to be. It could be the awareness and all of the information that could be one of the reasons why we're hearing more. But on the other hand, many people abuse it. And uh, every, every small thing they diagnose by themselves, this is OCD, this is anxiety, this is depression, personality disorder. We go straight to what we think we know, and it's not always the case. So the question is, how do we really know if it's something that we need a professional, uh, professional, professional advice, or it's just something that we can wait it out? So I'm happy to have tonight with us, Dr. Mandelman. And I wanna thank you, Dr. Mandelman, to be with us and hopefully be able to give the community some guidance and help us with the challenges and get a little bit of clarity and hopefully make things a little bit easier. Thank you. Thank you, Coach Menachem, beautiful opening. Okay. First of all, I want to thank this week's corporate sponsor. He's actually a good friend of mine, and um, he offered sponsor this week. I really give first of all the respect to him. The corporate sponsor is AMR Pharmacy. AMR Pharmacy, they're located in New Jersey and New York. They're not just a regular retail pharmacy. They're a unique boutique pharmacy that tends to all the pharma pharmaceutical needs. AMR provide, prides itself on outstanding customer service. Our services range from regular retail to group homes and patients discharging from skilled nursing home facilities. AMR provides single dose blister packaging and weekly blister packaging to help manage monthly maintenance of medications. Obviously people that are taking more than their amoxicillin. And everything is delivered to your door on a monthly regimen and is guaranteed to never run out of your medication. Our mission is to please every customer in discreet and efficient manner. If you have any questions, you can go to the website. It's amrpharx.com or you can email them at info at homehealthrx.net. And we'll talk about it a little bit more during the show. Uh, hopefully, you might get a slideshow to, to show a little bit more what they do. I think it's actually a very big need, and um, I'd like to bring that out a lot, especially people that could use it. And now I want to introduce Dr. Mandelman. Before I introduce him, I want to give him a little bio first. 
But uh, well, after the bio, Dr. Mandelman, I have a question for you. So Dr. Mandelman holds a doctorate from Columbia University in educational deve de de developmental psychology. He spent five years conducting research at Yale Children's Study Center. Afterwards, he went on to pursue a specialty in clinical neuropsychology at Cornell Medical Center. He currently maintains a private practice in Brooklyn and is director of Atsala of Central New Jersey, better known as Lakewood, and mental health crisis response team. And that's on the, that part. On the Yiddish part, he um, received smicha from Rabbi Reb David Feinstein Shlita, Reb Nota Greenblatt Shlita, and actually I'm a Talmud also of Rebellion Budni, but he's a Talmud Mubik, so I'm, I know I can't compete, sorry about that. But Dr. Mandelman, before we jump into this, this is the question that I have for you, ready? Sure. Question goes like this. We got so many questions from you coming on, my email exploded, I got an email from Gmail that I have to upgrade my account. And I got emails from anxiety, OCD, postpartum, bipolar, I mean, every disorder, I don't even know the names of some disorders, obviously a lot of children related questions. Can you please tell everybody here who you are, what you do, and everything about you? Everything about me is certainly not going to happen. Two minutes. Um, I, got it from, I, got it from, I got it from the boys in Milwaukee this week, but I just want to hear from you first. Um, I can tell you a little bit about what I do. Um, I think the reason why you got sort of the range of questions that you did is unlike many other clinicians, I don't do therapy. I only do diagnostics. And as a result of doing diagnostics, my range and the scope of my practice is far larger than most. Um, I have a rather diverse background in terms of both my education and training. I have four masters and a double PhD, like I mentioned. Um, and in a single day, I can see a child with a basic learning disability to um, dealing with a psychiatric emergency throughout Selwood, Central Jersey. So um, given the fact that the scope of my practice is as broad as it is, therefore you're gonna get questions that run the full gamut. Um, and you know, the common thread between all of them is what is the underlying diagnostic piece that needs to be understood in order to then better facilitate the appropriate treatment. And um, much of what has happened um, is mental health has become a big deal. And mental health in general, it's still very much a taboo subject. Um, forums such as this are critical in terms of lessening that taboo, but nonetheless, it is still very much taboo. Um, and there has certainly been a very much needed increase in awareness, um, but yet there, we still lack a tremendous amount of comfort in discussing these issues and dealing with these issues. And there's still a great lack of clarity in terms of what's actually going on. Um, and it exists both at a simple level, like people will come in with a laundry list of diagnosis that they think that they have, um, to the fact that they go online and find a checklist of symptoms. Um, I was sitting with a patient last week and they came with their child and uh, they were basically, they, they were doing the differential diagnosis based on every possible checklist they found on Google about their child. Having been none of them that they provided with the actual appropriate diagnosis. Um, so diagnostics is the most critical component to getting appropriate care, because regardless of whatever the follow-up treatment is, unless it is known what it is that you're actually treating, your level of success in treating it is going to be severely hampered. So the, the focus of my work is diagnostics, um, whether that is in terms of a consultation or whether it goes 
to full-fledged neuropsych, but it really comes down to diagnostics, understanding what, what is actually at play here, and then based on that, being able to construct an appropriate treatment plan to address the underlying issue. Did that clarify it for you? I got it perfectly clear. Dr. Melman, do you want to open up? Let's, let's again, I want, before we start, I want to let you know before you start, there's a tremendous amount of questions. We're ranging mental health across the board. We, we, we left this, we actually spoke about this, and we said mental health, ask whatever you wanted to ask, and we really got questions like that. So on your opening, we're, shooting. we're just letting you know we're covering. I actually try to, I try to break up the questions in categories so it's easier. But don't forget, we're going to push, of course, for live questions. The more live questions, is better. So this is going to be all over the place. Um, everybody, I'm sure not, you know, some people have something to get to some issue. So if we're talking about, you know, whether we're talking about OCD or something else, we're going to be trying to move along a lot of things and try to cover as much ground go as possible. Go for it. So do you, want to, do you want to start with an opening? you want to go jump into the Let's question? Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Let's start with the first question. Uh, again, I want to repeat to everybody, anybody can turn on the camera. This is appreciated. I'm Usher Parnas, the host. You can please text me if you have any questions. Um, I prefer if anybody can turn on their camera and ask a live question. It makes it much more dynamic. Of course, the question doesn't have to be regarding you. Of course, it's regarding your neighbor. Everyone's always asking for a friend. That's the basic premise. Always for your friend. Okay, let's, let's go. First question, very basic question. I consider myself a very healthy person who worked on myself a lot, and I've done a tremendous amount of therapy. Yet, when I'm around people who are of self-absorbed, unbalanced, I get myself set up and super irritated. How can I feel calmer when dealing with these type of people on a regular basis? So again, so when we're looking at that, there's two things. First of all, why is it those are those situations that you're putting yourself into or are those situations that you're finding yourself in? So that's number one. And the, that's diagnostic in and of itself. Are you gravitating towards those people because there's still something underlying that's leading you towards that direction or are those situations that are just unavoidable that you find yourself in. Um, and, and the fact that someone has done a tremendous amount of work does not mean that all of their issues have been resolved. Um, and people believe that since they've done work, all of their issues are totally not there and they're perfectly healed. Um, and that's a misnomer because what ends up happening is if someone thinks that all of their issues are totally resolved and they're totally fine, um, they will end up getting themselves into significant trouble when they're met in different sorts of situations where some of their other issues will be, uh, will, will actually be uncovered and a lot of those areas, their, their vulnerabilities will be very much at play. Um, and then again, people will call those, those will be triggering for them and that can happen at multiple levels. So the fact that the person has done a tremendous amount of work is, is wonderful and they should be commended for, so, for doing so. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean everything is resolved. So the number one thing in terms of that is maintaining a level of awareness of themselves. And when they are finding themselves in that situation, being very mindful of the fact that they, this is something that can be triggering for them and managing themselves in terms of that when they find themselves in these contexts. Okay, great answer. Let's go to the next one. This is a little more personal question. So one or two. Okay, it's not personal for me, obviously. I'm 25 years old. I'm always worried I have schizophrenia. I hallucinate a lot. I have visions that are not real. I'm not sure if it's a heavy day dreaming or more than I've never mentioned it to anyone because I don't know who and what could be done about it. 
Okay, jumping right in. Here you go from somebody who oh, they have unresolved issues, issues in terms of their, you know, them working on themselves and then finding themselves. So schizophrenia, first of all, um, of in terms of diagnoses, is something that is far less common um, than most other psychiatric conditions. Um, hallucinations um, are important to understand because they come in multiple forms. Um, and the presentation of the hallucination makes a big difference in terms of the quality. Now, there are some neurological diseases that can actually produce hallucinations. Um, there, there's usually a reason why someone would have an inkling as to why they would be concerned that they have schizophrenia outside of the fact that they're having hallucinations. Um, and also the fact that they're struggling with whether they're hallucinations or just daydreams is, is in and of itself questionable. So I'm that means- I'm gonna pause you because I have another question and it's exactly that question. Back to schizophrenia, I'm, somewhat el I'm somewhere else in different settings than I really am. It takes me about eight to 10, 12 seconds to get back to where I am and it's very scary. So again, th that can also be a level of disassociation that does not necessarily mean that they're having hallucinations. So hallucinations traditionally happen that you are actually seeing or hearing things that are not there. Um, most commonly, there are people or things, oftentimes animals, in places that you would not actually find them, oftentimes in bedrooms. So there are some medical conditions, like I said, um, that have them. And what's interesting is when people have them regularly, they're actually not all that bothered by it. Um, which is something that if you don't have them, you would be very surprised because you would think if they were seeing things that other people weren't, um, they would be very, very bothered by them. The fact that they're regularly occurring actually doesn't freak them out as much as one would expect. Um, but you would really, there's a lot of other pieces to schizophrenia than just hallucinations. And the fact that the person is sort of aware enough to question whether they have schizophrenia or not, I would be much more interested in understanding what's the history here um, and what's leading them to this question. I think that's an important frame to be approaching a lot of these questions um, because history- I usually, I usually get it during Shmon a lot. I don't know if that's Nagea, but I'm just saying. <laughs> um, Shmon is a, a wonderful opportune time to think about everything else except what we're supposed to be thinking of. Um, so, and again, when, when we're dealing with something like schizophrenia, we have to understand there's a specific texture and nature of the hallucinations that we'll be looking at. What are the, and again, sometimes there's a certain message that's being given and we wanna know what that is. Again, what are you seeing, when, where? These are all variables that need to be taken into account. Um, we also wanna understand what is the, their linearity of thought? How disconnected are they from their reality? All of those other factors, including family history, needs to be taken into consideration when making such a diagnosis. Now, and again, I think it's critical in terms of all this conversation, anything I'm going to be saying is obviously going to be very general here, because without having a comprehensive history, obviously no diagnostic considerations can be made here. Um, but again, the, the, the question of it in and of itself, um, I, I would be suspicious of it. I got, this is a referral question in my office. Um, my staff has already would already start to ask a lot more questions to try to understand the nature of what the actual concern is to get down to it more because usually people are not wondering 
am I schizophrenic or not? And you again, where did it start? What was the first point of concern? What else is going on? What's the level of disconnectedness with their environment? How well are they functioning? When is this happening? Is it periodic? These are all variables to consider. He does mention in his question that he doesn't have whom to talk to. Where will you guide him to pick up the phone and talk to? Again, depending on their location, you, you, you would not, again, and, and this is also something that's important to understand. Within mental health, everyone's sort of lumped together, and which is, um, and I, I will make an indictment in our community, and I'm saying so just because I think it's important for there to be a level of understanding and appreciation. There is a difference between the levels of training that exist. Um, so again, we have therapists, we have psychologists, we have psychiatrists. Each one of them have distinct levels of training. Most therapists and most psychologists for that matter are not going to be particularly well adept at making a diagnosis in terms of something like schizophrenia. Um, that's not what they're trained in. Um, when somebody would really have a real question in terms of am I suffering from something as significant as schizophrenia, that would be someone who would want to see a psychiatrist who is going to, who's much more familiar with the acute psychiatric conditions, such as something like a schizophrenia, as opposed to going to your local mental health professional, whatever their background training may be, you would want to make sure to escalate that to someone with appropriate credentials. And again, history is absolutely critical to account for all of this. Okay, let's take a quick poll because we jumped in quickly and I want to like calm the pace down. Schizophrenia, I think we covered some of those questions. We have a live question coming up. Shopsy, you're coming up. I'm just letting you know. We'll take a quick poll. I want everybody to please answer this poll. Again, it's anonymous. I don't know who says it, so don't be scared. Here we go. The poll goes like this. Do you have questions regarding mental health? You have, it's a five choice answer. Choose one of the choices. Yes, I do, but I am not comfortable asking. Yes, I do, and I would like to ask. Option number three, no, I do not have any questions. Number four, I do not want to think about it. Number five, I have a lot of questions, but I do, do, but I do not think there are any answers out there for me. Again. Okay, again, yes you do, but I'm not comfortable asking. Yes, I do, and I would like to ask. Here we go. I'm gonna share the results with everybody. 90% of people have questions, but they're scared to ask. Guys, this is why we're here tonight. You're here to ask. That's why you have Dr. Manuel, one of the, in my opinion, one of the biggest therapists right now out there and uh, across the board, double, double PhD. Um, this is your opportunity. So if you have anything, obviously, you know, everybody in somewhat, some shape or form definitely is either know somebody or related to somebody. Dr. Manuel, you know what they say? They ask them, does your family suffer from mental health? And the guy says, they don't suffer. They actually enjoy it very much. And 28% of people say, yes, I do, and I would like to ask. 36% of people, this is the winning answer, no, I do not have any questions. They're here tonight just to see you because they miss you. 7% of people, I don't want to think about it. And 10% of people, I have a lot of questions, but I do not think there are any answers out there for me. Very interesting, right? Indeed. Okay, Shopsy, ready? Shopsy. Thank you very much. So I had a question about stigma. I know Dr. Mandelbaum, you talked a little bit before about stigma and I heard you 
uh, other times talk about stigma. Um, I, I want to understand a little bit more what do you feel um, causes the stigma of mental health issues, and more importantly, how could it be combated? What is an attitude, a non-stigmatized way of looking at mental health, and how could it be communicated? I think um, I think I think stigma is really caused by ignorance, and stigma is caused by people not having understanding that mental health does not differ in nature from medical any medical issue. Um, and I think people being willing to talk about it and people having an understanding of it is really going to make the difference. And I, I think forums just like this are extremely critical in combating stigma because here are people, and again, there are lots of people on here right now who are interested enough. And again, obviously there was a large percentage who's claimed that they have absolutely no issues and have no questions, they just happen to be under for purely entertainment purposes. Interesting form of entertainment, if you ask me. Um, but nonetheless, having forums such as this that people are, are willing to ask questions and discuss issues related to mental health is an extremely effective means at combating stigma. And our community in general is working towards that. And the fact that we now have also far greater access. Um, and again, I, I think, Corona has been very interesting in a lot of ways. And again, this is not about Corona, but the fact that Corona was a universal experience. Now, a lot of people dealt with it differently and people have adaptive skills. People that actually have previously had struggles actually in a lot of ways fared better than others um, because they've already dealt with a level of adversity and been able to overcome things. Um, but it's been a great equalizer in a lot of ways. And there was a tremendous amount of talk about mental health and related concerns. Um, and I think that's an important thing because here was a communal issue that everyone experienced and mental health issues related to Corona were very much at the forefront. Now, again, were, were there opportunities taken by people to, you know, for whatever cause they were looking for? Absolutely. Um, but having conversations about the very human experience of mental health related issues and being able to discuss them openly and frankly as opposed to everything having to be hidden and everything being some big scary monster that everyone's hiding in the closet is something that forms such as this and others and again the any of the jewish publications um again they're, they're regardless of their editorial quality um the, the fact that they're covering them every single week regarding this is a very helpful vehicle to start combating these issues. So what would you say about, let's say, serious mental illness? Because you were talking about like common things like, like anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD. So then, you know, uh, you know it's, it's normalized because it really is normal. And and you know, you just have to bring it out in the open, like what you pointed out with Corona. Everybody was dealing with anxiety. Everybody, but when you're dealing with with severe mental illness, um, how did how do we remove the stigma from that? People are always education. Education is the number one thing. There was People stigma, for example, by cancer. That that I mean, and everybody knew it was a medical thing. I, I mean, I think the stigma was minimized over the years. But how is it minimized? Think about how it was minimized. Because we have community organizations 
that came out at the forefront. Not only was it minimized, it became very in vogue to be involved in organizations that were dealing with it. It became something that if you were going to be, if you were going to be someone that was going to be involved in an organization and you wanted to show that you're a concerned community member and you were going to be doing something to make a change, you were involved in that. Um, so again, the community organizations that have ability to disseminate information and be at the forefront and out there are critical means of being able to diminish many, many of the issues regarding stigma. And we have, we have organizations. We have, we have organizations such as Relief, that Relief not only is it helpful in terms of disseminating information and, re and really allowing people to have access to the critical resources in terms of the appropriate clinicians, but the fact that they're out there and, you, and every week they're in, you, you see them around, you see their advertisements, you see, they're, they're telling you everybody, mental health at whatever, whatever degree is out there. These are real issues and we as a community have them just like everybody else. And we as a community have an achrayist to tackle them. And we are gonna do so in a highly responsible, professional and effective manner. And, and again, my, my point about Corona was they came out, they came out in, into the forefront to be able to tackle it. So I, I really think much like you said, in terms of cancer, once communal organizations get out there and are at the forefront and are willing to have conversations and be open about it, that is going to make a tremendous difference even in terms of the more severe mental health and related issues and being able to community, being able to be comfortable about discussing it and dealing with it. It's good. Hi, sorry about that. Okay, it, um, Dr. Nandam, let's take a two minute break, okay? I have a bunch of questions coming up. I have a bunch of questions here and I have a lot of live questions. And I have a surprise guest that wants to ask you a question, somebody that loves you. Ready? Okay, guys, this is a message from our sponsor, AMR Pharmacy. AMR Pharmacy, they do caring for loved ones, because loved ones, it's challenging when people are old and you know you have to take care of them. Managing the medication adds unnecessary stress. There's no waiting on lines. It manages your refills, insurance challenges, missing doses, shortage pills. They put it all, all your medications combined into a blister pack. So a person is on multiple medications, an older person, they basically combine it all. It's easy to see what they're taking, what they're not taking. And obviously one of the big things, Dr. Mandel, I'm sure you could, you could uh, attest to that is medication. People that don't take the medication properly and people that, you know, miss doses or older people that, you know, they're not even taking care properly, it's a problem. So there's no additional cost. AMR Pharmacy, which is located in New Jersey and New York, service and deliveries are free. There's no charge for insurance, co-pays or out-of-pocket, filled and sorted by the date and time. No more sorting pills or worry that you have missed a dose. Tailored for you include vitamins and other over-the-counter medications, accurate doses, licensed pharmacists, and computerized processing verify each dose to ensure safety and the highest level of accuracy. Free delivery, no more waiting in line at the pharmacy. Your med box will arrive before your start date. We filled automatically. We will work with your doctors, insurance, to automatically fill your prescriptions before you're out of your medication. And the final page, AML Pharmacy, call today. The number is 848222. 1110. Again, this is also for doctors, therapists, and everybody that are, you know, prescribing medications. Obviously, better to use a pharmacy that could do this type of medication, you know, blister packs and all pre-made. Are you ready for the next question, Dr. Mandelin? Sure. You want to take a break? Should we take a yeah. break? Yeah. 
Okay, everybody come back soon and we'll cut now. Okay. Don't want a minute break. I'm mute. Aby, unmute yourself now. I thought we we're taking a break. Let's go, Aby. Aby, go, 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 go. <laughs> go. I'd just like to say, first of all, how honored I am to speak to our wonderful Pride of Milwaukee, Dr. Schmuelman. We are very proud. My brothers are all proud, as well as my parents. Speaking of parents, you brought up COVID. We had a question, my wife and I were trying to figure out, when do you put the mental health of your parents over their physical health? We live close to my parents and the kids, my mother and father want to hug the kids, but due to COVID, we have that problem that we don't want to get too close because house of trauma will get sick. But do we put mental health above their physical health? Because mental health is also very important. This is a very good question and a dilemma I think that was everyone had to contend with. And unfortunately, unlike some of the other answers that are very clear and direct, this one doesn't have such a simple answer. Um, and again, medical guidance is very clear and I'm not here to offer medical guidance. I, I think really trying to be able to you have to be able to keep, obviously, whatever medical guidelines are in place to maintain their safety. Um, but however, letting them be able to see their grandkids in whatever safe way possible is very important. And, and one of the things that we saw, even in terms of hospitalizations, and one of the things that we saw in terms of some of the fallouts in terms of COVID was that with the patients, the fact that they weren't able to have family members in the hospital very much changed the equation and very much changed many of the outcomes. And we have very clear literature across the board that family involvement within the medical care when the patient is hospitalized makes a tremendous amount of difference. Um, and we saw patients, even in terms of their mental status, um, having significant deterioration given the fact that they were totally isolated from family members throughout the time. And there was initiatives that were introduced later on that they were able to bring in tablets, whatever, to be able to communicate with family members. Um, but even within the context of COVID, within the hospitals, one of the, one of the things that was most different in this experience and other experiences were the fact that the family members were not able to be there for them. Um, so again, it is a very, very significant challenge. The balance is something that is hard to achieve. Obviously, the medical end of it must be upheld because their physical safety is of paramount importance. But nonetheless, whatever extent possible, the, ch the children can see them and be there and um, be part of it is important as well. But the, the medical health obviously needs to come first. But again, to whatever extent they, they can see them and be around them is important as well. But in certain respects, doesn't mental health not over, overcome the physical health so again, in terms of sentiment, that was that's been, and, and this is a conversation that I had a colleague with a colleague right before I came on here, is in terms of what is this balance? Are we, and the community in general, much of our response has been that because as human beings, it's very hard to live in isolation. And in, as human beings, we need socialization. And has that in any way undermined what the actual medical guidance and and really what those, what the guidelines should have been. Um, and again, it's a balance that needs to be considered given all of the risk factors. 
but it's a it's a very real dilemma. And again, this is this is highlighted in a very significant manner. Okay, Dr. Manuel, we have a lot more live questions. Um, there are a lot of people texting us; they don't feel comfortable asking, but we're gonna first go with the live questions. Anybody who doesn't feel comfortable, obviously, text Usher Barnes, the host. Um, we'll try to get to it. I'm, I'm letting everybody know we have till three o'clock in the morning with questions. Okay, Dr. Manuel. And that's with you. Regular operating hours, no problem. Regular operating hours. Don't worry, you can build all the, everybody's insurance, you can build together. Um, Mr. Samuel, are you on? I am on. Let's go. Hi, Dr. Mandelman. Um, I was wondering, I'm a student um, to become a therapist. And um, what I was wondering is, in your experience, uh, obviously you deal with a lot of different problems and a lot of different therapists who deal with a whole range of problems. I was wondering if you have noticed in your experience any like soft spots, like are there any areas um, of people that have different problems that there are not enough therapists in the from community or not enough good therapists or not enough um, training among from therapists? You just therapists. hit my soft spot. Um, we we the we need more therapists and we need well-trained therapists. The fact that we have numbers um, does not necessarily mean that we have the level of quality clinician that we need. Our community is large. Our mental health needs are significant and diverse, and we must be able to meet those needs in a highly professional manner. Um, and again, the level of sophistication of care certainly has improved over the years, but there still is a great deal of room to continue to improve. Um, and there, it, get good training, get good education and get good training, and there is ample opportunity within the field. Right. So my question is, is there a specific area where you see whatever, or Again, we have yeah. plenty of opportunity in whatever domain... And again, I think what's really important is that you don't do it because it's a niche. It has to be something that you're passionate about. Because if it's not something that you're passionate about, you're doing it because you think that there's a market for it. You have to be able to live and breathe this. And this has to be something that deeply resonates with you in terms of what you do and why you do it. And you have to literally be able to do this day and night and have a tremendous amount of satisfaction from the work that you do. So follow your passion, get good training, get good education, and take it from there. Got it. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Manimal, I'm gonna take another question off the, off the list over here, okay? They keep on coming in. How do you help a child balance curing with his friend, what his friends think versus not curing? Again, repeat please. Questions again. How do you help a child balance hearing what his friends think about him versus not hearing? Okay, so depending on how, what the dynamic is, there's, it's important for people to be able to appreciate other people's perspectives, but one's own identity cannot be dependent on others. So what we need to really be looking at is what one own, one self-concept is and how they view themselves, which cannot be dependent on others. But at the same time, they have to understand how their behavior and their and how they are viewed by others within the social context. So when we don't care, when someone says that you shouldn't care what others think of you, that means that your self-concept, your self-worth 
cannot be dependent on others. Well, at the same time, you still have to be aware of what others think of you in terms of your social behavior and making sure that that remains appropriate. And you have to be able to understand the, and you also have to be able to have the ability to be able to take others' perspective because that's a critical social skill. How do parents teach that to a child, the balance? How it's taught is by literally doing social problem solving and being able to understand that their self-worth is not dependent on others, that they have inherent and intrinsic value. And that's something that we should be reiterating constantly. And at the same time, when they're able to be able to view others' perspective and you're able to explain why others are perceiving things in the way they are, that's critical in term, we call it theory of mind, there's a number of terminologies for it, but them being able to see how others are viewing them and then understanding why they are being viewed by others in that manner is critical for them to be able to navigate appropriately socially. Is this being taught in schools? The assumption of most is that social skills are organically acquired. We do not necessarily focus on explicit social skills instruction. Um, now, as a result of that, again, most children will organically acquire that because children, we are social beings and school essentially is a large social environment that we subject children to for many hours a day. And our assumption is that they're going to learn to navigate that. Um, and what ends up happening is that the children that don't learn to navigate that suffer significantly. Um, do I believe that there is a need to be able to integrate more social-emotional instruction within our institutions? Absolutely. Do I think that would mitigate a fair amount of suffering that many have? Yes. Are we ready to go to the next topic? Please. Let's break it open. First, we're going to start with a general question, then we'll get into a detailed question. Somebody just literally texted me right now, but I want to go first to the general question. Can you explain in short the difference between bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder? They have nothing to do with each other. They have a lot, a lot of people are diagnosed with both over time, and they definitely do have similarities. They, they really, again, from an organic... I went to, when, I, when I went to school for my PhD. <laughs> okay, so again, they're, they're very, very different disorders. Um, I think people often don't confuse them, yeah. largely because they're active. Um, and bipolar disorder is an organic condition um, in terms of there being a chemical imbalance in the brain. Again, there's multiple forms of bipolar disorder, bipolar one, bipolar two, and then, and then borderline personality disorder is a personality disorder. Now, personality disorders is a totally different category. Now, just as a, as a general understanding, personality disorders are the most treatment-resistant disorders that we have. Um, borderline personality disorder. I'll tell you, I'm friends with a few therapists. One of my best friends is a big therapist. He has every borderline in his phone saved as borderline one, two, three. He has hundreds of them on his phone. He never answers them. And that, for good reason. Um, because they it will take a tremendous amount of your time. Um, they love hysterics. Um, and it, it, it becomes a very taxing process to deal with them. Um, so borderline personality disorder is, is, is a personality disorder, and they're very, very difficult to treat. Um, 
In fact, the, the, the founder of the most effective treatment for borderline personality disorder, Marshall Linehan, mm-hmm. who, did, who developed dialectical behavioral, uh, dialectical behavioral uh, therapy, is a borderline. Um, it took her years and years and years to acknowledge that, but what anyone who trained under her before she came out openly to discuss that would have told you that clearly um, because she's a miserable human being. Um, but so DBT is the most effective modality that we have to treat um, borderline personality disorder. And they're treatment resistant. They're very difficult people. We treat them, again, we treat, they get, basically it's skills-based training. They do groups. We treat, try to teach them some distress tolerance skills. Um, again, treatment outcomes are not great. Um, and again, uh, oftentimes people think that they're faking. It's a real condition, uh, but it doesn't necessarily make them any easier to deal with. Um, bipolar disorder is an organic brain-based condition that is generally best managed with specific medications. Um, and again, the, the, the types of medications vary, but they are very different conditions. Okay, now you ready for the question? Sure. The million dollar question, here we go. Can you talk, how common is borderline personality disorder, A, can you speak about the success or not of from marriages with one spouse who has it? Again, exact statistics I don't have on hand. Um, Being married to a borderline is extremely difficult um, because their ability to to build meaningful relationships and maintain them is one of their greatest difficulties. Um, and it is one, again, in terms of in the realm of Shalom bias, it is one of the most difficult challenges that anyone has to overcome from a therapeutic standpoint. And definitely within a Shalom bias standpoint, borderline personality disorder is extremely, extremely difficult to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, and what, what ends up happening is um, sometimes it will not be fully discovered the extent of the personality disorder until a number of years in, um, but um, very, very, very difficult to live with. And again, the, given the fact that it's as treatment resistant as it is, um, once you can actually convince them that they need treatment, the efficacy of the treatment is also not all that good. Um, so again, throwing statistics around, particularly within the from community, is never a particularly meaningful exercise. Um, but anyone who's had a contend with a borderline knows how difficult that they are. Being married to one is is at a whole different level. When they walk into your office, how do you know they're walking screaming and and back and forth? How do you know which one has the disorder? Uh, the, the, there's a sniff test. I had, I had a case a few weeks ago um, that a colleague of mine sent to me about, it wasn't even a Sean Bias case. The Sean Bias was not non-existent that I knew in advance. It was about a child. And they walked into my office and I immediately sensed what I was dealing with. Um, so despite the fact that they waited for an appointment and slept in, I immediately dismissed the patient because I knew that there was no way I was ever going to be effective in helping their child, given the fact that where the, the position of that parent was going to be 
me versus them, and their child was only going to be a secondary pawn in that process. And the fact that I responded as quickly as I did in the manner that I did, they were appalled that how could I possibly take that position? And unfortunately, given the fact that I've seen enough of them, I was uh, I, I, I knew exactly what I was up against, and I was quite pleased that I that I took that stance. Um, I felt bad for the child, and I felt bad for the other spouse, but unfortunately. My, my ability to effectively help the child was going to be severely, severely impacted by the parent's personality disorder. And one more topic on the borderline before we move on. Anybody else who has any questions on the borderline disorder, now's the time to text me or text if you want to ask live. I'm just going to have a follow-up on this. Any advice for co-parenting, obviously after post-divorce, with a borderline? So the, the only real way to deal with it is and again, they're very good at manipulation. That is their hallmark. Um, so having abundantly clear guidelines that are independently enforced is generally the most effective means of accomplishing that. But even with that in place, it is, it is a very significant challenge. I got it. Okay, we have some live questions, so let's try to stay on this topic before we move to other ones. Somebody else you might know. Go. Mr. Slossel, you're on. Okay, different topic though. But um, so, um, Amanda, I really appreciated your, um, your speech that you gave the 17 minutes about education and the challenges with Zoom. And I thought it was excellent. And I thought everything you said was 100% correct. But my question was, how can you help, like as a parent and a teacher, us to be able to move forward so that Klai Yisrael doesn't just do this again because we're gonna start in September and we may have some of the problems that you discussed or we may start okay and we might turn around again and have this happen to us again. So how, you also mentioned that there were some people that were doing this well and some people that weren't. How do we set up a system so that we can learn what is working and what, especially because I think you're asking people to do something, not just like, okay, add on information. I think it really probably needs an entire paradigm shift. So. Where can that come from and how can you sort of help us to, in this process? So it's a very legitimate question. And much of the feedback that I got was, okay, you, you delineated where the issues lie now. Um, and there, obviously there's going to be a now what that's going to be laid out um, in advance of the school year. Um, but, but I think, and again, I don't want this to be the, the focus of tonight, but I think using this summer as a critical transition period towards next year, school, hopefully whatever form it's going to start in is critical. Um, children need to start transitioning. They have been held in a terrible limbo um, for the last number of months. They need to have a resumption of social integration, again, with whatever appropriate guidelines are in place. There needs to be a sense of structure. There needs to be a sense of them being children doing things that children generally do within environments that they generally do so. Um, and that's a very, very big step. And um, some of the East Coast schools um, jumped into reopening schools um, given parameters that they were operating under. And one of the things that they saw very quickly is when these kids were not ready, they threw them back into school, and all of a sudden, kids weren't really ready for that. 
because they hadn't been students for three and a half months. Deciding the fact that they're going to go back to school without sufficient preparation, reintegration, and a gradual return to learn didn't work. Um, and as a result of that, all of a sudden, now that everyone was very excited about their kids are going back to school, not not so quick because the Rebbeim weren't really ready for it. The kids weren't ready for it. The parents were, were, were thought it would be a great deal until it fell apart. So what I really think we have to think about is how is we going to utilize this summer in terms of moving them towards a position where they can be integrated appropriately? What sort of pro-social behavior, again, within the health guidelines can be utilized towards them being able to transition into real life? Um, and what is that going to look like? What, even basic scheduling. You know, there's been a tremendous laxity in terms of what their day-to-day schedule looks like, in terms of routine, in terms of responsibility, in terms of pro-social behavior. That's all changed. And, you know, many people assumed, okay, they, they all know how to do this. They've done this for so long. I mean, throw them back into their same environment, and they're going to they're gonna assume that position again. That's not the case. So from a parental standpoint, um, being able to work on those things is absolutely critical. Um, from a school standpoint, um, and in many of my conversations with schools have really been in terms of what are we doing in terms of working on, first of all, from a curricular standpoint, um, because many, many of the students are not going to be in the same place as they were. Um, and many of them are going to be in different places because their experiences at home and their ability to follow whatever it was that was going on, whether that was phone related, whether that was on Zoom, whatever modality they were using, not everyone had the same home environment to be able to follow along in the same way. And getting back to school and getting into back into regular instruction is going to be very difficult. Um, and coming off of the summer, which is not going to be exactly typical, is also going to be very difficult for them. So I, I think that has to be absolutely figured out in advance. And I, and I think there's going to have to be a gradual reintegration. There's going to have to be an adjustment of the curriculum to match those needs very, very carefully. Um, and I think it's going to take time. And I, and I don't think people have it figured out. And I don't think people have fully understood or appreciated the extent of it. And on a general note, um, and, and I, I think people are feeling very good about their outcomes of corona. Um, I don't believe that we've actually seen the fallout yet. I think people are still very much trying to live day to day. I don't think people's lives have resumed to a sense of normalcy enough to actually have the full effects hit them. So I, I just think it's important for people to, as, as much as they're feeling confident and that how things are going and that things are generally okay, they should not have a false sense of security that they're okay. Um, I think really once school and camp resumes and people's lives really start to fall back into place, it is then we're really gonna get a sense of where things are holding. So I, I think all of those things really need to be kept in consideration throughout this unfolding process. Dr. Mandelman. Yeah. Um, I'm getting my phone's blowing up. My emails are blowing up. We gotta go. We gotta move faster. I'm sorry. Go, go. Can you give a two can you give a two line answer? <laughs> I, I, I think I was cool multiple questions. So I was just trying to 
trying to knock off multiple at the same time. I'm joking around with you. Yehuda, you ready? Yeah. Let's go. Uh, um, many people sometimes confuse moodiness with bipolar. And I had a more specific question. You mentioned differential diagnosis. And I know that there's, there is some um, clinicians, um, I'm thinking of specifically James Phelps' work about bipolar, where he has a lower spectrum for bipolar, and therefore include more forms of depression. You're, you're breaking up, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Yes, try Can again. you hear me now? Yeah, here you go slower and try again. Okay, um, a specific question about bipolar. Um, specifically, um, there's a, some clinicians have a lower spectrum for bipolar, um, specifically like James Phelps' work, where he has um, not just bipolar too, but much lower levels. And then um, basically it's confusing the, um, what, what's just episodic depression and what is actually considered a bipolar. So if you could help differentiate between bipolar and episodes of depression. So again, I think there's, there's a, an important previous step to that. Um, so what's happened in the field is that we've actually moved everything to spectrums, um, which is both good and bad. Um, they've broadened a lot of things um, because people don't necessarily always fit into perfectly discrete boxes. Um, it's made diagnostics in a lot of ways far messier um, and has given clinicians a little bit more latitude in terms of where things are. Um, but, but what I think is also important, and, and I think in terms of background to a lot of this, is there's something called prodromal. Um, and what, what we oftentimes see, and oftentimes you can really only fully appreciate that in retrospect, is that people can be cooking something, meaning there's something low level present for, could be for years and could be going on for, again, depending on what the diagnosis is, that there could be something low level going on for years and it doesn't come full bloom for, for a significant period of time. Um, and those are become very, very tricky to actually diagnose because when we're looking at it in its form at that moment, you're not seeing a discrete diagnosis. Um, but then over time, it will develop into something much more significant. Um, so when we're talking about lower grades, having a little bit of a lower threshold, lower spectrum, um, again, you can have, then there are people that say, why do I need to necessarily run on to throw a full-fledged diagnosis of, of bipolar, I can just do much more of a mood-related disorder, um, which, is, which is a legitimate move to make when you're trying to capture something that doesn't necessarily meet perfect diagnostic criteria. At the same time, um, being mindful of when we're looking at something cooking, when we're looking at something that may be prodromal, um, and then watching it develop. So I, I recently had a case of a young man um, who came to me and, you know, there was a spattering of history and the, and I was doing, I was collecting the history and, and, I, and I told the father, I'm like, I can go back seven years 
and this kid was cooking this. This is not, so all the diagnoses along the way were not exact diagnoses. Yes, everyone knew there was something going on, but that something going on wasn't any of those things that they thought that they were. It was actually, he was prodromal for whatever the, the end formal diagnosis was at the end. So I think th those are both important equations. So understanding the fact that we've gone to a much more spectrum-based diagnostic system, um, that you can have much more of a generalized mood-related issue, and the fact that there's always these prodromal aspects that can it, and need to be considered in the process. But is that bipolar? What? Is yeah. that valid for bipolar, that, that there's such a lower spectrum? Again, it, it's, a, it's a spectrum. That's what we, they've done it, because there's a spectrum. Um, and, and, and again, is it valid? If we're going to take human beings and stick them into discrete categories, by definition, they're not going to work perfectly. Um, and, and that's really been the evolution of the field, understanding that the complexity of human beings is far more, uh, is far more nuanced than discrete chapters in DSM-5. Um, and that's been the movement within the field. But understanding that, yes, that there still needs, obviously, to be clear diagnostic criteria, otherwise it's not going to go anywhere. Okay, first of all, Dr. Manuel, can you hear me a little clearer now or not? Much. Okay. I want to clarify that I got some text. People could not hear me clearly. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the program. I'm going to start over from the beginning. Are you ready for the next question? Yeah. Okay, let's go. Mr. Hellman. Yes. Um, I need more than a two-line answer. Good. We'll um, give you Okay, good. Um, have you, from your experience, found any uh, experience that lead to a child developing borderline, whether abuse or genetic or, and part two of the question is what um, type of parenting could you do to minimize your, your, your child developing either borderline or uh, symptoms of borderline or other personality disorders? It's a great question. Um, so if any parent could avoid their child becoming a borderline, I think most people would do anything they possibly could. Um, but the problem is we don't quite have a perfect system figured out how we can raise children not to be borderlines. Um, now, again, in general, in mental health, there is always the, 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 um, the debate of nature versus nurture is dead, thank God. Um, now we're much more concerned about exactly the gene by environment interaction, and now we're much more involved in the epigenetics of it. Um, and those are always going to be at play. Um, so understanding that those are going to be there regardless. So if there is a parent that has any of these personality disorders, now again, they're not going to be single gene transmissions that are going to lead to these personality disorders. Um, now, again, they're not, they're going to be components of it, and then you're going to look at what sort of environmental factors can help mitigate some of that. Um, and some of that is going to be in terms of, you, and again, sometimes you will hear somebody say that they are borderline neat, meaning that they obviously don't meet diagnostic criteria, but they're fetchy, they're, they're constantly needy, they have a hard time maintaining relationships. So a lot of that comes from appropriately appropriate modeling um, in terms of distress tolerance, in terms of how to make appropriate relationships, maintain those. 
Um, but again, there, unfortunately, we have not come up with a parenting model that makes sure that a child doesn't result in a borderline. And again, it's also, and it's a, it's a line I, I often say sarcastically, but oftentimes I will say a person doesn't have enough of a personality to have a personality disorder, um, meaning that you, there has to be a certain level of development of a personality to have a personality disorder because it has to be enough part of them and it has to be consistently un within them to actually constitute a personality disorder versus specific behaviors that are annoying and problematic in terms of their life. Okay, Dr. Mandel, are you ready for more? Sure. Put in the next one on. Israel. Yeah, hi, Dr. Mandelman. Um, is there any risk of anybody having a nervous breakdown that they could develop any kind of disorder? Um, a friend of mine told me he had a nervous breakdown. He developed bipolar. Um, a therapist told me that there's no such thing as a nervous breakdown causing any you're, disorder. You're breaking up. You're breaking up. Okay, let me try again. Um, can a nervous breakdown cause any disorder, for example, bipolar? I don't know what a nervous breakdown is. Uh, too much, too much emotions, too much overwhelmness. Um, somebody can't handle um, their life. And too much stress. Can stress cause mental illness? Is that the question? Um, yeah. Can it, can a new uh, di a new condition develop from that? Yeah. So generally, the the thinking is that stress can take an underlying dormant predisposition to a condition and exacerbate the situation to the extent where it can come out. It does not create an underlying condition. And there's all sorts of theories in terms of, even in terms of schizophrenia, there's a two-hit theory, but generally there's an underlying predisposition towards a diagnosis, towards a condition that then is, then is exacerbated by the stress that is going on. So the condition has to have been- You do not, orga you cannot, you don't generally, you, you, the thinking is that you do not get a condition such as bipolar or schizophrenia from stress. It is there previously and the conditions bring it about given the stress that you are under. Okay, Dr. Manning, are you ready? Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Hellman, a school psychologist. Okay, um, I wanted to ask about medication for ADHD. Um, if you could discuss it a little bit, when it's appropriate, how does a parent know if the risks outweigh the benefits? And I know it's student-specific or child-specific, but I think with kids being home for all these months, parents might be um, feeling a different kind of way about medication. So I wanted to know if you could address it. A very good question, and one that everyone would like me to answer and get myself into trouble with. So, um, I, I and particularly that we have a sponsor who deals with medication. Um, so, and I'm going to put it in blister packs so you'd never forget not to take it. Yeah, so then you'll know whether or not you took it. But, um, I, I'm, I'm going to be totally transparent. I am extremely conservative when it comes to medication. Um, no insult to the host. There are obviously many people that still need medication, regardless of my conservative approach to it. Um, we 
have a tendency to over-medicate um, because it makes people's lives easier. Um, we have a tendency to have a lot of misdiagnosis. So uh, my general philosophy is, unless a child is unable to benefit from their environment or, or benefit from intervention, I don't care whose life they're making miserable, unless it's their own, then we do not intervene pharmacologically. Um, and the fact that parents have been subjected to their children for three and a half months straight still does not constitute sufficient rationale to, to be able to offer them chemical restraints. Um, but again, every situation has to be considered individually and the extent of it has to be appreciated. So, um, and again, there's a tendency very much to say, it makes everybody's life easier, let's go for it. That's not my position or philosophy whatsoever. I'm much more conservative and it really has to be justified. And it has to be able to make sense within the context of this, how is this directly impacting their ability to gain from intervention or from their environment? Do you have any other questions, Mrs. Hellman? Um, is your specialty with giftedness in children? I spent five years at Yale um, studying intellectual giftedness. It is okay, one of so the areas of significant interest. Okay, so can we talk about giftedness and um, just how students um, who are, you know, gifted, um, how is that diagnosed or, I guess, evaluated or assessed? And then what do you do if you have your kid in a mainstream yeshiva or day school, which doesn't really have the resources to um, deal with that? giftedness? So, um, it's a very fair question. So there are multiple identification paradigms that are used for intellectual giftedness. Um, within the common, the school settings, um, the most convenient and um, efficient one is really an idea. Dr. Mamano, one second. People want a little clearer def definition of giftedness. Ah. Well, text me. So please, can you define a little more clear? So if I was going to I define I intellectual to giftedness, we would be here for the rest of the night. Um, sure. um, so it depends whose definition you want of it. Basically, a working definition that I commonly use are internal characteristics of a child that, are, that differentiate them in terms of their intellectual potential from their peer group. And it is not situational dependent, it is ever present within them that, that intellectually specifically, not in terms of talent, differentiates them from their peer group. Um, and it is something that is both genetically and environmentally moderated. Um, and basically what people call genius, there's all sorts of different names and titles for it, but it's someone that, that demonstrates a superior intellectual ability. Um, the way that it is most commonly identified and measured is through IQ tests. Um, IQ tests are obviously limited um, because they capture only very specifically culturally agreed upon constructs that are supposed to be indicative of something. What that something is, is up for debate. Um, but nonetheless, it is the most widely used measure. Um, and what your cutoff point within giftedness is also variable, um, anywhere between you know, 130 and above. 
Um, the second half of that question is a much more difficult question. Once a child has been identified as gifted, what do you do with them then? Um, and we don't have great answers. In the general world, uh, there are gifted programs. Um, the two most common options are acceleration and grouping. Acceleration means that they skip grades, they, they finish the set course of study at a faster pace than their peers. And grouping is that they have some gifted-like program. Um, I had the opportunity to be part of one that was housed in um, Yeshiva first Suite in Chicago. I was able to have the opportunity to consult with them. Um, they had a gifted program there. Um, but the, the limit, there are very limited options within our community. Um, and it's a, it's a significant struggle. Um, because we generally are very much focused on the opposite end of the continuum of ability. Um, and, but nonetheless, the children that are intellectually gifted don't have the resources or opportunities that they, are, that they really need. I want to add that working in public school, the public school systems are also very behind in developing Correct. giftedness and, programs. It's not and, just the... Correct, but again, at least there's uh, suppose there, there at least they're federally mandated to do something. Okay, we're ready to so, go for Yeah. Thank you. Want to ask any more? I, th I think I'm good for right now. Thank Bye. you, Jeremy. Let's go. Come on. We don't got all night. I'm right here, bro. Uh, hi, doctors. Here's my question. At some point, people started talking about borderline personality disorder. Um, somebody had a follow-up question regarding numbers and statistics. Uh, my question is a general. This program has been running for a bunch of weeks now. Um, the attitude here in the community at large has been to be very supportive of people or families with, you know, disorders of depression, anxiety, bipolar, whatever, some of the things we mentioned tonight. And I noticed that when you talked about this borderline personality disorder that I don't know much about, it was, it almost sounded like a curse or a cancer or it can't be helped. So my question for you is, like you shied far away from therapy or medication, that was my interpretation at least, what does that mean for the people who have it? And like I mentioned the statistics, maybe it's not that many, again, I don't know, but what does it mean for the people who have it? And what does it mean for us in the community relating to such people? So again, I, I, the, I think the way that it was presented to begin with, in terms of its commonality with bipolar, threw off a bit of the context. Um, it, it is, it is, it is, again, there are treatment protocols for it. Um, it is difficult to treat, um, but it's very real. And I think what people have to understand is when somebody has a personality disorder, there's a difference between someone having a personality disorder and just being a difficult person. And there has to be an appreciation for that. And that is sometimes lost. And most people don't walk around with a large sign and say, by the way, I have borderline personality disorder. I'm not just a difficult person. So th that needs to be understood as well. So my, my stance on it to begin with was to make it clear from a treatment standpoint that it's very difficult um, from a treatment standpoint. In, in terms of a communal response to it, it's no different than any other condition that we need to be able to deal with in the most sensitive and appropriate way. Uh, but again, being able to differentiate who has borderline personality disorder versus not is obviously a, a, a difficult task. Got it. Okay. 
it's it's almost as if uh, again like i said i don't know much about it but these it's the way you say it it sounds like these individuals are more dangerous than somebody who's just depressed or has anxiety or has ocd it's, not, they're, it's they're much more complicated in terms of their presentation um i, I don't want to get into gory detail here as to why I they're so complicated my mother-in-law asked me a question. I'm going to repeat it for her. She says, why is borderline so difficult to diagnose? Because a smart borderline, now again, there's different levels of borderlines. There are borderlines that the second you say hello to them, you have a sense that there are borderlines. And then there are borderlines that are smart and adaptive. Then it's much harder to, they, they, they get you in their web pretty deeply before you have a sense that they're a borderline, and at that point you're in trouble already. Um, so there's and, and and what their objectives are in terms of being able to draw you in also makes a difference. Um, and the management of borderline personality disorder is something that takes a lot of patience and skills. So I know that you had my friend and colleague Mathis Miller here on here previously. Um, and Matis deals with borderlines because he's somebody that is extremely structured and patient and the, the, the therapeutic intervention that he offers them matches exactly what they need because he knows exactly where to draw his boundaries and how to do so in a, an appropriate manner to be able to give them the help that they need without it becoming overly consuming. So that's that's why I, I couched my response in the way that I did. Okay, let's go. Next one. You ready? Are they on? Mm -hmm. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I was just wondering, how do I, um, I have a, a daughter with ADHD, and um, how do I know if her social emotional difficulties are stemming from her ADHD? or she also um, might be on the autism spectrum? Very good question. Um, many children with ADHD do have social emotional challenges as well, um, but you would generally have specific indication to know, to be concerned about autism. Um, and again, autism, once we're on the topic here, is something communally that has uh, we have higher rates of diagnosis probably than any other group in the world, um, not because we actually have a higher level of autism within our community, just diagnostically um, for a multitude of reasons, some legitimate, some otherwise, um, have very, very high rates of it. Um, so the, the question is, we would be looking at very specific things diagnostically that would suggest to us that it's something different than ADHD and be leaning a much more towards ASD, um, but again, children that have ADHD, and again, it, depending on what else is within that profile, is it just ADHD? Are there other, either other learning or language-related deficits that come along with the ADHD that can also account for some of the other social-emotional difficulties? It really depends on the profile, but in terms of ADHD versus ASD, generally there would need to be very specific indicators pointing towards something that would suggest that it was of an ASD nature. Um, is there such a thing as dual diagnosis? It can, it is, again, there are dual diagnoses. And a lot of times, you also have to know there's rule outs. So, and there's also mutually exclusive diagnoses. 
Um, now you can have multiple diagnoses, but you would have to again, you would have to have a compelling reason to believe that it's not one over that it's one over the other, and the social and emotional deficits would have to be of a specific nature to suggest that it's not just ADHD. Okay, Tara, next. Hi, my name is Atara. I'm a psychiatric PA in Lakewood. Um, I had a question for you. You mentioned how you're very conservative about medication management. In a child with ADHD, true diagnosed ADHD, are there times where you would recommend interventions as opposed to medication? Um, first of all, I, I, we have not had an opportunity to have a formal introduction. I know that you are, I believe, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, you are working together with my close friend and colleague, Dr. Ronan Hazan. Yes. So th this yes. is a, a rather public hello. Um, you can ask Dr. Hazan, we obviously uh, collaborate a tremendous amount together. Um, do, do I ever recommend intervention over medication? Is that the question? In regards to ADHD, yes. Again, I, 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 I never will recommend medication without, without it coming together with an appropriate intervention, behavioral intervention along with it. Um, I don't believe in just throwing meds at kids and believing it's going to go away. Um, depending on where the presenting issue lies, um, again, if I believe that, again, depending on what my other intervention is, so, for example, something that I pops up a lot is if, let's say, I have a child with both ADHD and a language deficit, right? Will I tell them first, even though there's ADHD, will I tell them first, first try a language intervention before popping them on meds? Answer is yes. At any point, if, that, if their attentional deficit is interfering with their ability to benefit from the language intervention, then I would intervene pharmacologically at that point. Um, but and but I also only believe in evidence-based practice, so I'm not going to be telling them to do any of the other wonderful activities and interventions that other people come up with as in, in lieu of actually getting appropriate care. So that's the balance. Great, thank you for your. Okay, let's go to the next question. Devor, are you on? Hi. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Manzaman. I would love to like hear your thoughts in terms of the differences between cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic. I guess really like specifically in terms of their evidence and how to consider the research in terms of finding a suitable clinician. And also, I know it's a little bit long, in terms of if you find not from therapists, more evidence-based than from counterparts, so to speak. Wow, that's loaded at multiple levels. <laughs> Hope that's okay. I would love to hear your thoughts on whatever you could offer. I don't mind getting myself into trouble. So, um, again, it's, it's only recorded and it'll be sent out to thousands of people. It's not a problem. I'm still fine. Um, so, again, psychodynamic therapy versus CBT, it really depends on what you're trying to address and what your objectives are and how you're trying to get there. Um, anyone who says that there is no value in either of them um, is sorely mistaken. Um, again, if you are, have a simple phobia and you're trying to um, address it using psychodynamic therapy, you're wasting your time. That much I will tell you. 
um, if you are, if there are many things that CBT, given the, its modality and what it's aimed towards, um, is far more effective. If it's much more in terms of general exploration and what is it you're trying to understand how you got to that point, um, psychodynamic therapy has tremendous value. Evidence, again, there's a famous um, studies about how each one of the therapies stack up against each other, dodo bird effect. It really comes down to what you are trying to get out of the intervention and what your objectives are. Now, again, do we want to know if I've ever sent a patient for psychodynamic therapy? The answer is yes. Not necessarily because of psychodynamic therapy, because, because this, for whatever reason, I believe that the CBT model has been ineffective for this patient. I believe that there needs to be deeper work done. And as a result of that, um, I think somebody needs to be going beyond CBT. Now, most good therapists are not one-trick ponies. That means that anyone who will tout themselves as a strict ABC therapist are missing a lot of complexity and texture because people are not one-note people. Um, so having, and anyone who tells you they're eclectic, you also want to run the other way because it means they have no idea what direction that they're going in. So it really depends on what your objectives are, what you're trying to treat, and how you want to get there. Um, and in terms of your question about evidence-based clinicians from versus not from, um, there was a question earlier on in the program regarding somebody who was in school and trying to decide what area they should be focusing on or not, and in terms of they were in school and where they wanted to figure out what they should be doing, and I told them that whatever it is that they're doing, just get good education and good training and there'll be sufficient clients for them. That remains true. Um, it, there are advantages and disadvantages to both from and not from clinicians. Um, and we have very many, very, we have very many highly trained evidence-based clinicians within our community as well. Um, and it really depends on the situation and what the issue is at hand as to how one chooses the most appropriate clinician. Okay, Dr. Madam, are you good? How much longer we got? You tell me. I can go all night. You know, I'm Milwaukee, we have to go sleep at nine o'clock, so you know. The, the, the street lights out. are starting to flash already. That's right. <laughs> all right, Dee Dee, you're on. Let's go, next question. Hi, thank you so much. I'm curious as a parent, um, where, do you, where do you draw the line between a normal tantrum in your children and this needs this this needs professional help. Um, I know some I know tantrums could come for many reasons and kids can act out like crazy for many different reasons. I'm just curious, like at what point do I say this this is something that I should really look into um, versus this is normal in a child? Very good question. We 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 usually use the paradigm of how much is it impacting their ability to function? And then we're going to really look at how the, the intensity, the frequency, and the duration of whatever it is that is happening. Um, I, what I'm looking at is what are some of the triggers? How bad are they? How long are they lasting for? How quickly do they come back to themselves? Um, is there a general low frustration tolerance? Is this kid easily triggered? What happens? And when people are talking about tantrums, 
um, given sort of the, we could be somebody who's sitting in the corner and crying versus a kid pulling a knife. So we have to know what you're talking about and what works to calm them down. So, you know, and we, when we have kids kicking holes in walls during tantrums versus a kid that just needs some time for themselves makes a big difference. So how extreme the tantrum is, how frequently they're having them, how long they're lasting for, what they're doing during those tantrums, all make a difference in terms of answering that question. Yeah, Dr. Madelman, I gotta go to the next question. I'm sorry for doing that. Sorry, Didi. Okay. I gotta go to the next one. Um, okay, this person's uh, texting me about 20 times for this question. It appears there are more, more behavioral issues and mental illness in children, specifically teens today. For example, behaviors such as stealing, using drugs, breaking into houses, offices, mental illness, including conduct disorder, anxiety, depression. What are the factors contributing to this increase in the firm community? And what can we do as a community to prevent some of the contributing factors? So everyone will have a different opinion as to whether that's actually true or not. Um, I, I think really the most important thing that we can do in terms of prevention is good parenting and good schools. Um, good parenting, having solid foundations is the most important protective factor in a child's life. Having schools and community-based institutions that children feel accepted in and are doing well within are going to be critical factors in terms of their being able to gain adaptive skills and being able to lead productive lives. Okay, one more, here we go. I'm curious what advice can be given of parents of children in Shaduchim and couples that are dating? What are some warning signs, flags that can point to potential mental health issues in prospective can candidates? Very complicated question. Um, and unfortunately, it's one that I'm asked frequently and one that I sort of have to deal with at multiple levels, um, whether it's when they get the resume, whether it's while they're dating, whether it's when they're engaged, whether it's after the point they're married, whether it's by the point they're about to get divorced. So um, it's a very, very loaded question. And um, there isn't a single answer for it because there aren't one, there, there aren't a single set of red flags because they're, it depends on what condition you're looking for. Um, I, I can tell you in general, as much as progress has been made in terms of stigma, in terms of understanding and awareness of mental illness within our community, um, Shaduchim are still an area that many, many people are not transparent about what's going on. Um, and I will get panic calls from parents um, about potential Shaduchim. I'll get potential public calls about married couples that just something just became known to them, engaged couples, um, and there isn't a single red flag. It's about trying to do your due diligence, do all of your homework, and I, and I think it's important that people understand that they believe that getting their child married is the final goal that they're working towards. The, the kunst is not getting them married. The kunst is having them married, staying married, and being married happily. So getting them to the finish line Pass the chuppah is not what we're trying to get to. I always, I used to hear parents always say when they have shorter kids, they say, "Well, just get them married right away. Let's get be done with this." 
Unfortunately, marriage is not a hospital. Um, but but it, it's a very, very significant issue. And again, we've made progress, but we still have a long way to go. Because Shaduchim are complicated to begin with. When you throw mental health into the equation, it becomes exponentially more complicated. And again, there are some parents that are very upfront and honest about it. And yes, that very much limits their potential options. Um, but the flip side of it is very, very dangerous and damaging. Okay, Dr. Madam, I'm gonna do, I think I have two more questions. I'm gonna ask them and uh, then we'll go to closing, okay? Because I really, honestly, we, you have to come back again. You have no choice. Literally, we, I, I think we covered maybe 20%. Yeah. Obviously, there's a big need. Clearly. What they were Even though nobody has any real questions, they just came for fun. Right. It's that people have a lot of friends. Clearly. Okay, next question. Again, we're switching topics again. I try to keep it on topic, but it's, it's a little bit too hard. How could one who has been in a relationship with a narcissist assure that he or she does not fall into the relationship like again? What specific character traits should he or she work on? It's a great question. Um, it, what, so again, narcissism, and a true narcissist is also a personality disorder. Um, Dr. Mandel, can I say the narcissist joke because I'm a little bit bored now? Please. The narcissist joke goes like this. The narcissist goes on a date with a girl and he's talking about himself for about an hour. He talks about his car, his watch. He has the most expensive, you know, hat and car and his plane and his trips. And after like an hour and a half on the day with the, with the girl, he says, you know something? It's really not nice. I'm talking about myself the whole time. It's this shame. Enough about me talking about me. What do you think about me now? Okay, continue. Beautiful. Well said. Um, so again, once somebody has experienced a narcissist, they want to stay far away from them. But nonetheless, we see them very much gravitating towards them. And we see this in general in behavioral and, and relational patterns that even though people have experienced the negative outcomes in being involved in such relationships, they very much fall into those again. Um, so again, being very, very clear in terms of being mindful and aware of what am I getting myself into? What are the red flags? And we have a tendency very much to try to ignore things because we want to see the positive in things. Um, and oftentimes people who see only the negative Okay, you're just a pessimist. Everything is bad. You own, you know, you'll, you know, based on your criteria, no one would ever get married. That's all. That's all wonderful. But the reality is, you have to truly be vigilant in terms of making sure that you are not getting back to the same place. So it's not about specific character traits. It's about being mindful and aware of your relationship, your relationship patterns, being honest to yourself, and being honest with others about what's really going on. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm getting more, Dr. Mandel. I'm gonna have to extend it to one more. Okay, you ready? Yeah. I know Dr. Mandel has spoken about many dysfunctional in the standard school systems. I'm coming from a school on Hollow member. We put a lot of effort of service to our parent bodies' needs. At the end of the day, parents want this system, and if we would change it, what MS needs, what the MS needs of our students? Our student enrollment would go down the tubes. Everyone is too scared of society to face what's the best for their kids. Is this what we should be doing? I, it sounds like like they're saying like the parent body pushes sometimes things against what what people what they think is the best interest of the kids because the parent body you know ultimately you know calls the shot. Have you seen? So that? again, I, I, what what I understood from that question is 
that if they would actually do things in the best, if the school would act in the best interest of the child, it wouldn't necessarily be popular and then they would get negative pushback from the parents. It's really about finding a balance and it's really about figuring out what within a framework can change. Um, keeping status quo doesn't need to happen just because I have to placate the parents. Being able to improve instruction, instructional methodology can happen. Being able to make things far more child-centric can happen. Making things developmentally appropriate can happen. Everyone thinks to be able to revolutionize education, we we'll often be sitting in a sandbox and playing games together. That's not, what, that's not what's going on here. Being able to understand and appreciate the educational development and mental needs of children and their social emotional needs of children does not have to come at the expense of excellence in education. So it's about rethinking what we're doing it, doing things with intentionality, understanding instructional design, understanding child development will make all the difference. Okay, amazing Dr. Mandelman. Wanna to go to closing now, okay? Uh, first of all, I wanna get to thank Dr. Mandelman for coming here tonight. For me personally, this was like therapy session 101 all over the board. It was a tremendous amount. And uh, tons of people are upset at me. I'm getting texts. You didn't ask my question. I have so much. I'm sorry to everybody. I really, I try my best to moderate it. It's not an easy session to moderate. It was a very broad topic. And Dr. Mandelman is obviously very wanted and needed. And I'm trying my best. Dr. Mandelman, Michael me? Michael, you. I tried. This is a wonderful, I had a wonderful, I think it was a wonderful opportunity. I think, I think it was a tremendous payout for everybody. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do this. And I do agree. I do feel like, especially this, this types of open sessions, you know, bringing, you know, facts to the table, uh, I think it makes a big awareness. And I think this is, you know, that's one of the things that we like to do with Menachem, is we like to take topics and, you know, special mental health is one of our big things. We like to break it down and um, we try our best. Okay. I want to just tell everybody next week, we have Dr. Rabbi Sandra Yossi Kassiro, Rosh Hashiva from Sifta of Eaton Town here next week, together with Dr. Yossi Schaefer, PhD from Lakewood. We're going to be discussing adapting to teenagers in today's complex world. It's going to be a very interesting thing. Dr. Mandelman, I'm sure you would have a lot to say. Um, everything here tonight is going to be recorded. It's going to be posted on MenachemBernfeld.com. And if anybody has any questions or anything, please email BernfeldM at gmail.com. Um, again, I would like to thank our corporate sponsors this week, AMR Pharmacy. AMR Pharmacy isn't just a regular pharmacy, retail pharmacy. It's a unique boutique pharmacy that tends to all your pharmaceutical needs. AMR prides itself on outstanding customer service. Our services range from regular retail to group homes, patients with discharges from skilled nursing home facilities. AMR provides single-dose blister packages and weekly blister packaging to help manage monthly maintenance medications. They're located in New York and New Jersey. Everything is delivered to your door on a monthly regimen and guaranteed to never run out or your medication. Our mission is to please every customer in a discreet and effective manner. If anybody has any questions, please contact them at 848-222-1110 or you can email them at info at homehealthrx.net. And again, I want to thank our advertising sponsors. Again, the Lake of Scoop always for pushing us out there. It's a massive chesed. I mean, I'm, me and Menachem, we get hundreds of emails, people thanking us for uh, bringing this to, to the public and giving people the access to such amazing people like Dr. Mandelman. We really appreciate it. I'll give a special thank to Chazak, to Robbie and Yaniv, always being out there for everybody and really pushing chesed and Torah and everything out there. They offer programs from teen, uh, children, teens, singles, couples, millennials, baby boomers, cherished seniors, Chazak offers programming for all. Please visit chazak.org. And I would like to turn it over to Coach Menachem for closing and then Dr. Mandelman, knock it out of the park. Wow, this has been a lot of information. I'm sitting here and listening. <laughs>
And I want to thank you, Dr. Manderman, for coming on and giving over this information. And thank everyone who had the courage to open their camera and ask their questions. I just want to remind the Oilem that we're dealing over here with humans. And uh, sometimes, we, like Dr. Manderman said, we want to medicate to make things easier. And sometimes we do have to, and we have to figure out when what's right and when not to. But uh, again, it's a process and it takes time. It's like planting a seed and you got to water it, wait for the sun and wake up every day and just wait, do what you have to do. And I think today's days, the, we're having a hard time with that because we want things to happen yesterday or at least today. We do not have time. We need things to work the way, exactly the way we want now. And especially people who are going through all these um, um, hardships and to people who have family members, um, they do need all this information. <clears throat> and hopefully, Metzashem, they'll be able to, they're able to get some, a little bit more clarity. And uh, thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. And thank you again, Dr. Mandelman. I want to say one more thing, Dr. Mandel, before it goes to you. My mother is sitting next to me. My mother has a master's in special ed. And she says, Dr. Mandelman, your range of knowledge of questions and your answers, we pounded you tonight and we're blown away, honestly. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm not going to do much of a closing. Um, I, I just want to be able to, we saw tonight with, we had hundreds of participants, Baruch Hashem. There's a real need. We have to be up front. We have to be open and honest about it. It's time that we address this. We address this responsibly and professionally. And the more we do so, the less issues we have down the road. And the, we, we, there has been awareness. Shows like this increase that awareness. I think it's a wonderful platform that you provide for everyone to do so. And you've had um, a very prestigious lineup of guests to date. Um, and Halavai Viter, and I really think that the fact that people at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, this is how they're spending their time, is wonderful, and um, you should uh, see, continue that slot in doing so. Well, thank you. Also, thank you. See you next week. It's going to be exciting, and um, goodbye from Milwaukee. Thank you. All too.